We're in a series called In Christ, and we're looking at this profound reality of being in Christ Jesus, what it means to be in Christ Jesus. So let's pray real quick, and then I want to dive right in. Heavenly Father, your name is great, and it is greatly to be praised. Like that last song that we sang says, worthy, worthy, worthy. That that's our vocabulary when we are in your presence is reduced to that word. Because you are supremely worthy. There's nothing like you in the universe. And so, Father, I come today and I pray that my friends would come today and anybody who can hear my voice would come and listen to your word, and to embrace you as our treasure, Father. And that somehow, despite the finite resources and capacities of our own minds and our own affections and all that we're made up of, you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, lean into this gathering with these people and that you would communicate what we need to hear about today what I need, what they need, Father, so that not only that we would glorify you supremely, Father, but when we leave this place, our lives would be such a reflection of the beauty and joy that our God and Savior has that the world can't help themselves but ask, what's the reason for the hope that you have? Why are you so happy in your God? I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of, a, of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the, the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel around 700 BC. And in this text, Isaiah holds out two paradigms, two massive realities for the people of Israel. The first is of an unrivaled king. He calls him the branch of Jesse. This is a man without equal 
who will reign over everything. The man is filled with the Spirit of God. He is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord rests on him, remains on him. This is the Spirit of wisdom. This is the Spirit of understanding, of counsel, of might. He is an unrivaled king, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. And he reigns, as the text said, absolutely. Over the poor, he judges with righteousness. And with the wicked, he kills them with the breath of his mouth. He reigns in full and supreme and complete authority. There is no one like him, period. And the other paradigm, that's one, the other paradigm that Isaiah is presenting here is a paradigm of unprecedented peace. It is the absolute undoing of every single harm or any kind of pain that you can conceive of on the earth. All that could possibly hurt mankind in this imagery is domesticated and is nullified. He mentions wolves, he mentions leopards, he mentions lions, he mentions bears, even cobras and adders. He says that all of these, which would be threats to our peace and to our joy, all of them are now images of peace. They are images of joy. They've been effectively defanged and domesticated, and they live side by side with what would have been their prey, what they would have eaten. So what is the story that Isaiah is telling us here? Well, he sums it up at the last line. He says this. He says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why is that? He tells us. The reason why they won't hurt or destroy in all of God's holy mountain is because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord just like the waters when it covers the sea. The knowledge of the Lord will fill all of the created order like you would see the filling of the ocean if you stood at the edge of it and tried to count the, the many molecules of water out in front of you. And this happens explicitly because of an unrivaled king who ushers in this unprecedented peace. And I want to be clear about what I'm talking about today. We're going to get to Colossians in just 10 seconds. But I want to be clear about what I'm talking about here today. This scene painted by Isaiah is the greatest single event in history, period. There is none like it. The scene described by Isaiah is the consummation of God's redemptive purpose from eternity past and into eternity future. This is what everything is headed towards. This is the end, the goal, the reason for all that had come before. The filling up of the earth with the knowledge of the Lord is the point of everything. And Colossians 2 is going to help us discover why that's the case. So if you could turn to Colossians 2. And we're going to look at verse 8. David last week uh, opened this up for us. There's one last thing I want to talk about and the thing that we are going to be engaging today. So starting with verse 8, it says this in Colossians 2. Paul says, See to it, Colossians, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, Colossians, you, risen hope, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So last week, if you were here, David did an awesome job. He opened up um, this section, these three verses, and walked us through what it, what it means for human philosophy and human tradition without Christ to be empty. All philosophy and all tradition and anything the world brings to the table, if it doesn't bring it according to Christ, is ultimately emptiness. It is pursuing emptiness to pursue those things. Because in Christ, Paul says, the whole fullness of the deity, God himself, dwells bodily. In other words, if you're trying to get fullness out of human tradition, or if you're trying to get fullness out of philosophy in this world, you will come up empty in the end. Because the fullness you seek is only found in one person, and that's Christ Jesus. And we know that the whole fullness of the deity of God dwells in Christ bodily because we've actually looked at it before. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1.15. And we've mentioned before in Hebrews 1.3, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the personification of God's beauty and glory. And the exact imprint, the physical imprint of God's nature, the eternal God, is present in the body of Jesus Christ. And then Paul continues in this passage here and says something shocking. He tells the Colossians that this Jesus, who has the whole fullness of the deity in him, you have been filled in him. That is, in Christ Jesus, his fullness invades our emptiness, and we are in him filled. We are filled in him. If there's one word, as you read through the book of Colossians, that is the buzzword or the, the mantra or the rubric for this book, it is this word, fullness or filled. Paul is engaging this word, this pleroma in the Greek, And it is the driving factor that's facing the Colossians and the deception that's slipping into their church. And it's the driving factor when he addresses the deception to them. He wants them to know, you want fullness? You want to know where fullness comes from? Fullness is found in only one place. One place alone will give you fullness. Jesus Christ. And if through faith you are in Christ Jesus, then this means that you have been filled in him. Paul is effectively saying that one of the jobs of the Christian, and this is remarkable, is to spend the rest of your life grappling with the reality that God, through Jesus Christ, has filled you with himself. Filled you. That's what it means to be a Christian. The fullness of God invades your life through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could have ended it there. He could have said, that's enough for you to chew on for the next two years and moved on to the next topic that he wants to address. But he doesn't. He finishes this train of thought with one line, and it's very strange. It comes out of nowhere, it seems like. He says, he, that is Jesus, is the head of all rule and authority. Now, what does he mean by that? Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. Well, we know that he's not talking about earthly rulers, 
and earthly authorities because predominantly when Paul uses these two words, rule and authority or ruler and authority, he's referring to something completely different. For example, Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and then he kind of helps us understand what they are, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul's saying that these rulers and authorities that he's talking about in this part of the letter, this isn't, he's not talking about political rulers. He's not talking about political authorities or some sort of earthly government. He's referring to something way different. He refers to them as cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places. And so what he's saying here is these rulers and authorities that I'm talking about here in, in the book of Colossians are extremely powerful beings that reside in a place of great authority. Far above any kind of authority you've seen on this earth, a kind of authority that dwarfs anything you can conceive of on the earth. And if that sounds weird or strange to you or like something from a science fiction movie, it should. It's having its desired effect because it is very weird it is very strange, and Paul would not be surprised by that response. They are not what we would conceive of. And here's the deal. These rulers and authorities that Paul is holding out here are not our allies in the text. If you read the Ephesians passage, he's telling them, you need to wrestle with these things. You need to fight them. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We fight against these things. And the way we wrestle is expressed in the next verse to help us understand what the real threat is. We need to look at how do we wrestle with these things? Why are they such an issue with Paul in in the book of Colossians? Well, in Ephesians 6.13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. The main threat from these rulers and authorities isn't physical, isn't demonic, it isn't something you've seen in The Exorcist or Poltergeist or any horror film. The main threat for these enemies is sin. Sin is their weapon. And the threat that they have for us is our own sin. And we know this because when Paul, after this passage, lists every piece of armor we need, all of those armors or pieces of armor are designed explicitly to keep us from sinning. He says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day to stand firm. In other words, not to sin, not to relent, not to give yourself over to these things. Sin is Paul's main concern when he engages these. And if it causes you some kind of relief, you're like, oh, great. So it's not like a haunting situation. It's not some weird sci-fi movie thing that they're going to come at the end of the world. It shouldn't cause you any relief at all because sin, our sin, is far worse than anything Hollywood can conceive of. Our sin has eternal consequences. Sin at the beginning of human history is what condemned all people to death and condemns us still to death when we sin. And sin 
if it's unforgiven, if it's unpaid for sin, will send a human soul to hell for eternity. Sin is not a kind of game, and these things are real threats. They are real threats, and the consequences could not be more massive. But to really understand the gravity of this weapon, to really understand why these things can get away with using our sin like this, we need to go back to the very beginning. We need to go back to the garden. And the first time when this weapon was wielded, Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and listen to this, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God makes man. He creates man. And he loves man. Loves him more than you've ever thought of or conceived of love being possible to be expressed. And he blesses them. He gives them everything. You see this in this text. I give you all of creation. It's your dominion. Subdue it. Fill it. And he also gives him his own image, his seal, which is a sign. These are my children. They know me. They know the Lord. They know who God is in a different way than everything else in the created order. And wherever they go, they bring that knowledge with them. And so he tells them, you need to go everywhere. You need to go multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and cover the earth. Kind of like the waters cover the sea. So that everyone, everywhere, everything, everywhere knows me. But then a short while later in, this, in Genesis 2.16, he says something else. He says, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree you may eat of it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. You shall die. And so there's a new tree introduced here among the trees in the garden. And this tree God refers to as the knowledge of good and evil. Think about the language being used here. The knowledge of good and evil. This is not the same as the knowledge of the Lord. The knowledge of God, which image bearers have because they bear his image. This is a different kind of knowledge, and God tells them, don't eat of the tree. Don't eat of that tree. Don't partake of that tree. Trust me and believe me when I say, you eat of it, you will die. 
And we know what happens. The enemy comes, the serpent comes, and he deceives them, and they eat of this tree, and they take this knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And the penalty is death, which means that Adam and every single human being in Adam, which includes the entire human race, has now become recipients of that penalty and all the condemnation that comes with it. This is where death infiltrated the world. This is where death entered the cosmos. Adam's sin here, it's important to note, wasn't just eating a fruit. It's just fruit. There's, no, there's nothing magical about the fruit or your jaw muscles clamping down and you swallowing pieces of whatever this was that causes anything here. His sin at the bottom of everything was refusing to believe God when God told him not to do this. Instead, he believed the enemy. That's the root of his sin. He rejected the knowledge of God and embraced another kind of knowledge. The idea that he could, for himself, arbitrate good and evil better than God. Better than the creator of the universe. Adam effectively tells God here in his actions, God, I think I can make this decision better than you. And so I reject my knowledge of you by refusing to do what I was meant to do, which is, tragically, the exact opposite of what he does. He was designed to spread the knowledge of God across the entire created order. And if I can be real with you, this is our greatest problem. This is our greatest issue. We all are participants in this same thing. And not only that, but we will, and I don't want to put this too severely, but I can't, Everyone in this room will one day die. We will all die individually. We will die, all of us. And it's because of this. It's because Adam refused the knowledge of God, and we are all participants in that, and we continue to perpetuate it. We're all inclined intrinsically, naturally, by our flesh to reject the knowledge of God, and we're all inclined to replace it with our own knowledge. Nobody says, nobody will say, even Christians, I'm smarter than God. No one will say that. I'm smarter than God. I'm smarter than the Creator. I can make my own decisions. But if I'm honest with you, like, that's how we live. That's how most people live every day of their lives, and even believers struggle with that. Our actions exude a kind of unwillingness to embrace and love the knowledge of the living God. And so for these enemies, these rulers and authorities that we were reading about in Colossians, these enemies, sin is the weapon they wield, and they wield it really well with, to great effect, which is why Paul caused them, calls them cosmic forces of evil, over this present darkness. This world that we live on is their playground. And on the surface, at least, without any knowledge of Christ, that should cause us great distress. That should unnerve us quite a bit. So let's read Colossians 2, 9 through 10. Now that we've got a better understanding of these things, these rulers and authorities, let's read it again with that understanding. 
For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you, us, we, have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. He is the head of all rule and authority. So two questions we should have now reading that. The first one is this. How did Jesus Christ become the head of all rule and authority? How did he become the head of all rule and authority? And the second question is this. What does it mean for us? Why does Paul interject this statement in the middle of his train of thought? That Christ is the head of all rule and authority. It's very strange that he would do that. There's got to be a reason, and we need to ask that question. So let's tackle these in order. The first one is this. How did Christ become the head of all rule and authority? Some of you may be saying, well, Jeremy, it's Jesus, Son of God, We've already read in Colossians 1, uh, 15, 16 through 20 that he is the creator. All things were made through him. And in fact, these rulers and authorities are explicitly called out in that text as being things that were made through him and for him. So of course he's the head. Isn't this what it means for him to be the head? And the answer actually is no. The answer is no, not in the same way. Look at the words that Paul uses to describe Christ in verse 9. He says, The fullness of the deity dwells in Christ bodily. Somatikos in the Greek. Bodily. What does he mean by that? That's something completely different than the Spirit, the Creator God at the beginning of history before the Incarnation was even a thing. Um, that's something significantly different from that. God's godness was possessed by Jesus when he was mere flesh and blood, not spirit. He, was, he had the spirit of God. The spirit of God was in him, but that's not what this text is saying. The incarnation, God becoming man, was the eternal, supreme, living creator becoming a mere creature, a man. Philippians 2 helps us understand this paradigm. We've read it many times, but I want to focus on something a little bit different here. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness, the form of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he describes it with these amazing words, Christ emptied himself. He let go of the form of God and instead took on the form of a servant. He took on the likeness of man. He took on flesh and blood and became a creature. For the first time in all of history, not just human history, all of eternal history, God became man. That's what the incarnation is. 
And Paul continues saying that this act of humility, this act of obedience, him humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, led to something remarkable. So this is Philippians 2, 9, continuing that same passage. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee, human or otherwise, will hit the ground. Every single knee. And at the name of Jesus Christ, Paul's telling us here, every single tongue, every tongue in the universe, whether you are a three-year-old child in a poverty-stricken third-world country, or whether you are the highest and most supreme authority in the cosmos outside of God and Christ, you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will be very clear on that day who the King of Kings and who the Lord of Lords is. And you and I, all of us in this room, and everyone outside this building for all of human history will look upon him with every creature in the universe, and we will say, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. There are no exceptions to this. He is Lord of all. He is an unrivaled king, without question. And so when we read Colossians 10, it isn't simply God the Son being head over the rulers and authorities as creator. This is a human being. Think about this. A human being has been made head over the rules and authorities. A man right now rules the universe. A human being. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, son of Joseph, born in a manger, flesh and blood just like me and you, is the unrivaled king of all things. A man. That's how he became the head of all rule and authority. Now we need to turn to the second question. What, is, what does it mean for us? Why would Paul present this reality to us at this point in the text? That Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Why is he so concerned about this? Well, the same Christ, who he says in verses just before this, is filled with the fullness of the deity in his body, is the Christ who is the head of all rule and authority. And according to Paul, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, everyone in this room, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, then in him you have been filled. In the head of all rule and authority, you've been filled. So follow with me on this. This is massive. Christ Jesus, being in him, has filled us with God. 
We are filled with God. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 1 as he prays for that church. He, he's, he's in the middle of a prayer and he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his, God's power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where is that? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under Christ's feet and he gave him, gave Christ as head over all things to the church. He gave Christ to the church, which Paul says is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who fills all in all. This is huge. This is massive. God is looking down on his son, beaten, butchered. He's dead on this cross. He is very dead. And they take him off this tree, what's left of him, and they put him in a tomb. And he is dead for three days. But then on the third day, something happens. This man stops being dead. He stops being dead and God brings him back to life. And he doesn't simply resurrect Christ, which would be enough for us to worship him. He doesn't simply raise him from the dead never to die again. It says here, Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of majesty. This thing, what's been described here in this text, has never happened in the history of the universe ever. A man like you and I is reigning at the right hand of the living God. And in doing that, in putting him up there, he has placed all things under his feet. And he says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority in the universe. There's nothing above Jesus except the Father. Nothing above him except his own Father. And then staggeringly, Paul tells us, he gives this exalted Christ, supreme over everything, to someone. He gives him to someone. He gives him to the church to everyone who's ever trusted in Christ Jesus. And Paul defines the church as the body of Christ, Christ's own body. He says this is the fullness of Jesus, his body, the church. It's the fullness. Now consider this a moment before we continue. Christ Jesus, the head of all rule and authority, exalted above everything, this same Christ, Paul says, is so intimately connected to his own people, his church, that Jesus looks at his church, us, and he says, you are my body. You are my body. That's how close you are to me. You are my body. You are my fullness. You are my fullness. And the church is so united with Christ that he, they bear, we bear his image. If we are in Christ and we are filled in him, and we are his body, his fullness, then 
we are image bearers for him in a way that nothing else in creation can be and even even people who are unbelievers can't be because we are displaying who he is. And then he says amazingly that through the church, through his body, Christ fills all in all. So follow me here. If you think we've ever gone deep at all in Colossians before, and we have, these four words to me make everything else look like a shallow pond. In my opinion, these four words are the deepest phrase in the New Testament. Fills all in all. So you remember what I said at the beginning, this picture that Isaiah presented of an unrivaled king and of an unprecedented peace, these two paradigms, that is the goal of the universe. That is the final point on the continuum of history. Think about what's being expressed here. When God the Father gives his son, Christ Jesus, to the church, the fullness of the deity floods into our hearts and we are his forever. We are inseparably his. And somehow in this state of being his body, Jesus Christ fills all places in the world, in the universe, in all of created reality through his people. His body fills the world and those people carry with them the knowledge of God. Ephesians 4.10 says it this way. He who descended, this is Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might, this is the reason why he ascended, fill all things. So if you remember Adam, Adam, too, bore the image of God. He's called the Son of God in Matthew. And he was made explicitly to display the knowledge of God, and he was commissioned to spread that knowledge throughout the entire earth. That was his job. That was what he was given to do. That's what he was meant to do. But instead, he rejected the knowledge of God, and he embraced his own knowledge of being able to choose what is right and what is wrong. He refused to trust God's promise and he instead believed a lie. And what he did was he partook. This is an amazing picture of what we're going to see later. He partook in a tree. He partook in a tree and he ate of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result of that was death for every single human being in him, in sin. But Christ doesn't reject the knowledge of God when he comes into the world. Think about what Jesus did. Christ instead embraces that knowledge and he actually loves the knowledge of God. He adores the knowledge of God and then he displays it perfectly for the world to see. And the highest point of that display was on the cross. When in obedience to God, he goes to a tree and he partakes in another tree. And then God exalts him high above all rule and authority. He ascends him into the heavens and being at the head of everything, including every ruler and authority, 
God fills all things. Listen to how Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end, when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He must reign until every single enemy has been put under his feet. Every ruler, every authority that's boasted before God has been humbled. Every enemy that's wielded the power of sin against God's people will be made a fool and ashamed on that day, including death itself. Death will hide from the face of Jesus Christ on the last day. Death will do that. And everything will be subjected to Christ Jesus. And to what end? Verse 28 sums this up. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Who is that? God. That God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. The fullness of God floods the universe as the body of Christ is sent to its furthest reaches. When I began, I presented to you the two paradigms from Isaiah. An unrivaled king in an unprecedented peace. Jesus Christ is the unrivaled king. He is the unrivaled king and he is filled with the fullness of God. Not only does he possess supreme and ultimate authority, he is filled bodily with the fullness of God. And that's what it means to be unrivaled, is to have that extreme authority beyond all uh, imagining. And this unprecedented peace is only secured, only achieved by Christ when he has put every enemy, every single enemy, every ruler and every authority under his feet, including death. Remember Isaiah? They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. This is God's promise to us. They shall not hurt you or destroy you on my mountain. Every ruler and every authority will be nullified before this unrivaled king. Every single one of them, just like the domesticated wolf, just like the harmless cobra, they will be made nothing. And his reign, Christ's reign, will extend to the furthest reaches of the cosmos. And he tells us how this happens. This happens when the fullness of his body, through his people, the church, his image bearers spread across all of created reality and they fill the universe with the knowledge of their God and Savior. The fullness of him who fills all in all. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God, just like the waters cover the sea. This is the goal of all things. 
This is the consummation of redemptive history, that the cosmos would be filled with a display of the glory and knowledge of the living God. And this happens amazingly through us, through his people. He fills us with himself, and on the last day, we fill everything else. The reason this is even possible is because just like Adam, Jesus came, and like I said, he partook of his own tree. He took fruit off of his own tree. It was another kind of fruit. This wasn't him rejecting the knowledge of God. This wasn't him embracing the knowledge of arbitrating between good and evil. This was him taking every millisecond of our rejection of the knowledge of God onto himself. Every sin, every act of rebellion, every ignoring of God in our decisions, in our thinking, in his design, Jesus Christ takes all of it. Now think about this. I, when I was working through this text, I just wanted to reflect on my day. What had I done that honored God that day? What had I done that dishonored him? And there's a lot of dishonoring. There's a lot of sin. And to think that he took all of those every single day of our lives, every millisecond of unfaithfulness, every millisecond of us not loving him as he ought to be loved, every foul word, every sinful thought, every defiance or disregard of who he is objectively, Jesus took that and he ate that fruit until it was gone, until he was gone. It says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. On the tree. And in doing that, Christ endured all of God's punishment for every sin we've committed and it was the only way that he could redeem us for himself and reverse what Adam did. And it was the only way that we could be found in Christ. We could be united with Christ Jesus, be brought into who he is, woven into who he is. Now remember what God promised Adam? The day you partake of that tree, you will surely die. You will die, Adam. Don't do it. Don't partake in it. But out of obedience to God, Jesus partakes in a different kind of tree, and the day he partakes in it, God keeps his promise to Adam. And Jesus dies. And on that day he died, He was consumed by judgment and wrath we deserve. Think about what the love of Christ might have to be in order to bear that curse. All of his people he desires to redeem. His compassion when he considers us and he goes to that tree and he says, I will take it all on. All of it. I want all of it. Don't leave any drop of it outside of me taking it. But that wasn't the end because God the Father looks down at his son alone, dead, seemingly defeated, and then he picks him up and says, I'm lifting you up and I will place you high above all rule and authority, above every single name that has ever been named. 
so that every knee would bow at your name. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then Christ, in that position, looks at his bride, his church, the bride he died to redeem, the bride he adores, his own body, the fullness of himself. And he says to her, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, go and fill all things with the knowledge of my Father. Fill all things with the knowledge of my Father that he might be glorified. That he might be lifted high. Let's pray. Father God, your mercy in redemption is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I don't just say that as a superlative. It is so boundless and so huge that for our hearts to rise to the level of embracing it, we need you to come and help us. We need you to take that immeasurable greatness of your power that you rose Jesus Christ from the dead with and seated him at the right hand with and we need you to exert that for us, to take our hearts that are so inclined to love anything else but you and to lift us up into your affection and into your love so that we would know the love of Jesus Christ that we would know, that we would be able to, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ for us that surpasses knowledge so that we might be filled with, shockingly, astonishingly, the fullness of God. You can do that today, Father. You can take our vessels, our hearts, our beings, and you can fill us with yourselves. I'm pleading with you that you would do that. And I have confidence because it says right after that, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or can even think and conceive of with our minds according to the power, immeasurable and boundless, that is at work within us. To him be the glory in his church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen.